Today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking with a very special guest about chip shortages, battery investment, and the future of EV form factors. But as usual, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Ricky Roy. How you doing, Ricky? Doing awesome, Matt. And by the way, welcome back. We uh, we 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 did a show last week. I think we we scraped by, but we are very <laughs> very happy to have you back. <laughs> I'm glad to be back. I did watch it. I thought it was a great episode. And I want to thank Ben Solens for, for filling in. He did a great job. Absolutely. And speaking of special guests, we have one this week. Uh, hopefully, probably the reason why you guys are all here. Mm-hmm. But we have a very special guest and friend, Mark Fromar, the CEO of Archimoto with us today. And we're going to talk about kind of the future of EVs and, and Archimoto's place in that world. How's it going, Mark? Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on the program. It's great having you here. We're really excited to talk to you. Archimoto has been something I've been, a company I've been really interested in for <laughs> ever since you guys came out. You know, right, right-sizing daily mobility is, uh, <laughs> is no mean feat. So how about um, we kind of kickstart some of the uh, conversation with one of these news stories that we were talking about at the beginning. So to kick things off, uh, this past week, uh, the chip shortage and parts supply shortage has been rearing its ugly head again. And a lot of companies have been coming out over the past few weeks and months uh, having to curtail production. They've been shutting down production in their factories uh, things like Ford and GM announced uh, one to two week closures and at multiple factories. Nissan is closing its Tennessee factory until September 13th. Uh, Toyota announced a 40% cut in production in Japan and North America for two months, which means 360,000 vehicles are being cut from production. And the average prices of uh, cars are going up because of this shortage. It's The average price in the U.S. right now has hit $41,000 which is over $8,000 higher than just two years ago, which is just insane. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what's your take on this, Mark? Like, what's your, imp- is it hitting Arkhamoto? What's your impression of being in the industry of this chip shortage? Yeah, well, 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 I would say that the the events of the pandemic um, and uh, not, not just the pandemic, there've been a number of different events between uh, the uh, crazy freezing temperatures in Texas to uh, flooding and uh, uh, the blockage of uh, of the the big canal, um, and that in com- in combination with uh, all of the knock on effects of COVID, uh, have have really I think laid bare um, the uh, the fragility of the global supply chain, uh, and that you know dealing with that is a is is a uh, is going to be a multi year effort, obviously. Uh, and you see that with, um, you know, efforts to onshore microchip production, uh, onshore battery production. Uh, but I, I think that's going to ultimately lead us to a much more resilient supply chain uh, focused around the electric vehicle world. But there will be uh, choppy seas between now and then, and we are not immune. Uh, if, if you guys were on our last stakeholder webinar, you know, we cut our vehicle production target uh, for the year to 425 vehicles, uh, and we were planning on delivering 500 plus, um, I, I would say, and that, that is, it's not just microchips. It's, it's, you know, the, the, the Texas issues with, uh, with, there was a, a refinery complex that made, uh, as an, as an output of that, the, the seals on our gearboxes. And that was one of the things that we had to scramble and, and deal with amongst many, just as, as one example, um, I think for what it means for Arkimoto in particular, though, is that we're we're sort of in a gap between um, the the launch of low volume production and then our planned entry into uh, the beginning of much the, the ramp to much higher volume production starting late next year, uh, and that gives us I you know because we are able to put vehicles on the road as a new entrant still today. Uh, it, and it gives us a larger time window to help adapt uh, to um, the need for parts in much higher volume. Uh, what, it, what it is forcing us to do, though, is to be very judicious about where each of our production units goes. Uh, and so where we had you know, previously planned for the, the bulk of this year's production to go to uh, individual purchasers, now we're really shifting uh, the, you know, we, uh, the, the focus to uh, rentals and rideshare and various fleet opportunities while still making sure that we're getting key early adopters vehicles that they've been waiting for for a long time. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're not immune, but I think uh, 
when I look out at the landscape, it, it makes me glad that we're not in um, you know very high volume production right now and having to deal with that that type of a scramble. Uh, it, it just means for us uh, sort of tighter, more careful re- resource all- allocation of what we can build. Right. Ricky, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I was reading that some companies, what they're doing is they're actually just manufacturing the vehicles and storing them. And that the idea is as soon as the chips arrive, we'll stick them in there and we'll, we'll sell them. That way we can continue the manufacturing of it. But that's a whole other kind of potentially, um, am I freezing up a little? A little bit. Uh, you might be potentially, okay. <laughs> you might be potentially building cars that are going to age out or, I mean, what if the chip shortage is so drastic that the, the chip's never come and now you've got a bunch of metal that is like a model year 2021 and no one wants to buy it next year or something so it's a tough spot for everybody and i don't know if there is a easy or a an obvious answer here but um somebody in the comments mentioned it's kind of a rough time right now and i I agree there's there's really not an easy answer i think people are probably kind of tempted with the inflated prices of used cars to think about maybe selling their car because their cars are worth more than ever before but yeah. You got to remember, you got to turn around and buy a car too. So you know, it's it's a tough, it's a tough spot. What do you what do you think, Matt? Well, I, I was going to say, I think Mark, you raised a really good point. It's not just the chip shortage. It's like in the article they were talking about how it's also like wiring wiring harnesses, plastics, yep. and glass. There's shortages across everything, which is just having a ripple effect. And from my understanding of the, of the supply chain, it's like when you have a downturn at the manufacturing level, that's like a ripple effect of six months before you can like. It's not like you can turn it on on a dime and have everything back to normal. So it's like we're looking right. at late 2022, maybe 2023 before things start to get back to normal as far as the supply chain is concerned. And you have issues where, where these events are not all hitting simultaneously. There, yeah. you, you could have a, a, a COVID outbreak at a, that, that stops a, a plastics plant from producing uh, uh, your, your body panels one week, and then you could have a... a, a port outbreak that uh, stops containers going out for eight weeks. And then you can, you know, so, and, and each of those has, has huge downstream ripple effects. So that's why we're, we're anticipating choppy seas for, you know, the next 18 months. Um, but that, that it just means, you know, on, on the, on the business level, it means we've got to adapt and we've got to make sure that we are building, uh, building out the, 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 the business in the smartest way that we can. Um, I think that that is, I mean, I I think it's sort of, it's a, we are, we are doing our best to make the best of it. I think that we're relatively speaking in a good position because of that. Um, And it, I I would say that particularly as we're in the, in the mode of the sort of, you know, really the transition to uh, electric vehicles, that it's going to be, it'll be interesting to see how uh, the major players react in terms of their sort of their product roadmaps. Because for us, uh, the really the bulk of our work today is designing replicable mass production, and that's you know we we are we are aiming to basically get the factory in a box that we can so that we can spin up not just one scale production facility but ultimately you know many production facilities, um, and that you know this this time of you know work from home collaborate effectively with lots of remote teams. That's actually met, let that process go faster, um, but it, it really depends. You know, depending on what stage a particular business is in, whether the impact is going to be either entirely negative or or have some some silver linings. Well, we don't think about often is supply chains, raw materials, mining. Um, I met with a company from Canada who's going to be starting a graphite mine in North America, and they were talking about how pretty much all of our graphite comes from China, and either geopolitical reasons or, you know, maybe shutdowns or whatever the case might be, we could very quickly and, and, you know, we could fall into a situation where there's no graphite. Without graphite, we don't have anode for batteries and we'd kind of be shutting down all of our gigafactories and everything else. A lot of people don't realize just how fragile some of these supply chains are. And I think really the future really ought to onshore, you mentioned onshoring more, more capabilities and stuff, but we should, we should reimagine business a little bit. I think the pandemic has taught us that we can't just, rely on everything working smoothly because it it has for a long time and th- when things go well they go well but we need to start thinking about robustness and and um just how predictable and reliable some of these supply chains are and resilient um, hopefully that's something that gets more attention in the future because it doesn't get talked about enough 
we spent the last decades as a as a country here uh, offshoring uh, all, all of our you know as, as much of our manufacturing as we can in kind of this race to the bottom, uh, and that that's uh, clearly showing itself now to be uh, to be long term a real bad move. Um, and when you think about the you know, p- the pandemic is one thing, but climate disruption uh, that's happening more and more and more frequently. And so we want to be uh, in a position where we have localized production of the things that we need uh, so that the places that aren't presently in uh, a horribly disrupted state uh, can get the, you know, so the, uh, the, uh, the cavalry can come in. But if, if everywhere is, if everything we build is dependent on some piece that comes from everywhere in the world, we're in big trouble. Yeah, we need a more resilient and diverse supply chain to be able to get through all things like this. And, and just recognizing that, that we are uh, capable uh, humans and we can build the things that we need in our own backyard. Yes. <laughs> versus uh, versus assuming that, that you know, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, I, the term low cost country, uh, it's just that, that one is, I've always found particularly uh, repugnant because it just means you've, you're, you're, you're just going, it's this, this sort of uh, push to, to, to move from place to place to place purely based on the cost of labor and not thinking about the long-term implications of what, what that really says. One of the things that Matt always talks about is how um, there's a whole new slew of products and, and form factors that electrification enables. I mean, could you imagine if someone told you 20 years ago that Eugene, Oregon and Fremont, California would be manufacturing centers for vehicles? I mean, that's absurd and crazy, right? It's a notion that I wouldn't even believe myself, but here we are because that's kind of the cool direction that we're headed in. So I, I do think there's hope for this as new startups emerge, but yeah, it's a shift in, in thinking for sure. That kind of ties into the next story I kind of wanted to bring up, which is going to that self-reliance a little bit, which uh, is about Toyota announcing they're spending $13.5 billion by 2030 on battery production, um, which to me, I thought was interesting considering when you compare it to things like what Ford and GM and VW are doing, VW is spending $178 billion for electrification. <laughs> uh, GM is planning to spend $8 billion on two battery plants here in the US. Uh, you've got uh, Ford who has a joint venture with SK Innovation and they're spending about $30 billion by 2025, which is even way more than Toyota's planning on spending. And Toyota's focusing on solid-state batteries for the future of their cars, but they're still pushing heavily on the hybrid model of battery electric cars. And by 2035, they're only expecting 2 million dedicated EVs, where there's going to be 6 million battery electric hybrids that they're still planning on uh, selling. So it's a completely different approach, but it kind of ties back to a the bigger theme, which is batteries seem to be that kind of linchpin for all of this. So it doesn't matter what your intentions are. If you don't have a good supply chain, good battery suppliers, whether you're controlling it yourself, like GM's building their own plants. Tesla, of course, has their own plants. VW is building their own plants. Um, I was just curious for for you. I mean, you can definitely t- talk about this because it's like you're an EV company. So you clearly have a, a relationship for a battery supplier What's your take on the industry at large for can we make enough batteries for what we need to do? And are these companies making the right moves? <laughs> so so from from Arcimoto's seat, right, like we're our our goal, we, we, we are today essentially uh, battery agnostic, right? We the, the goal, the, the big picture goal of of Arcimoto is to just use a lot less battery for Going to get a bag of groceries or a cup of coffee. Um, our our first platform is uh, you know uses about a quarter of the battery of a full size car, and our second platform is going to use about a, you know less than a quarter of that. Uh, and so, uh, over the long haul, as as we get to the point where we have uh, multiple mass production facilities cranking out Arcimotos, it may make sense to invest in our own battery production facilities. But we just want to do a lot better with the batteries that we have in terms of the, the what I'm seeing out there. Uh, and this, you know, I really look at, uh, uh, I think, what Tesla unveiled on Battery Day about a year ago um, with how they are planning on really ramping up mass production of battery cells 
Um, ultimately, I think that's going to have a, a ripple effect throughout the entire industry. But I would say any company that today is is still making a, a, a pretty lighthearted push towards vehicle electrification, um, I have uh, I'd, I'd be concerned that they're they're going to miss the boat. I think of the new companies that are pure electric. For them, this is absolutely critical and core. If you don't have batteries, you can't make Archimotos, you can't make Teslas, as you mentioned. So I think there's a there's a focus and a, and a, a clear path forward there. But for legacy automakers, it, it seems a little more nebulous, potentially, like if you're Toyota. And by the way, the part of the story that bugs me with Toyota is they're also like actively lobbying Congress to like lower some of these emission standards and stuff and like re re loosen restrictions. And so it's like, they can't make up their mind. I, I do think they're dragging their feet quite a bit. I think, as you mentioned, the targets are way too small, way too late. But um, for them, if they don't have battery supply, like for example, the Ford F-150 uh, pickup truck is a good example. They're planning a very small scale, like 50,000 units, I think in a couple of years, I think even 35,000 next year. So for them, if there's a, a big battery storage uh, shortage, they just turn around and sell their gas cars, right? So th there's, there's less, motivation or incentive for them to really take this seriously. I think VW is taking it seriously. I think um, General Motors is as well. The pouch versus cylindrical debate, that's another interesting topic we might maybe we can get into <laughs> so as far as the path they're going down. But yeah, it, it does feel like they're now kind of de-incentivized in two ways. They have a gasoline car model business. And if they feel uh, a constriction in supply chain for batteries, they can just say, look, we'd love to make EVs, but we just can't. So we're going to keep making gas cars. So, yeah, I think, Mark, you're right there. It, it seemingly feels like they could easily miss the boat on, on this, but there is some good, good progress. And, and you can there's certainly that that, oh, well, we can just, you know, keep making gas cars. But I think that's going to run into a, a major public policy obstacle in the coming years as the effects of climate change are becoming more and more and more obvious. There's a huge pressure on the public side to, uh, to to push for cleaner solutions. You, know, you saw, I think New York just announced um, that they won't be allowing sale of gas powered vehicles in 2035, uh, if I recall correctly. And that's, that's mirrored in many other jurisdictions. And I expect the pace of that will continue to accelerate. Yeah, that's, that's actually the biggest surprise for me for what Toyota announced. It's like Europe is going electric. They're requiring it by law. China's doing something very similar. That, that domino is starting to fall here in the United States. I don't understand how Toyota's looking and reading the tea leaves and deciding what they're doing because the future of gasoline cars is going away very quickly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm worried right. for Toyota, who's such a massive company today, that they're going to just let this ship sail and they're going to get left behind. Well, well, that's the issue. You know, when you think of a massive company, I mean, that's, that's a big ship. It's a difficult ship to turn. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it uh, the majors in this space um, have have really uh, I mean I'd, I'd say they've been asleep at the wheel as far as the the push to electrification and are having to play major catch up um, and to be doing that in the middle of uh, pandemic and climate disruptions is is a trick. The, the whole battery thing is to me kind of a litmus test of which companies are taking this seriously and which ones aren't. And so like you look at VW. They're spending hundreds of billions of dollars transitioning to electric. That to me says they're serious about this. And then you look at companies like Ford, which are kind of in that middle ground, and then Toyota, which are just like letting the ship go away. And they're betting on hydrogen and other technologies that they're hoping will catch on at some point. Any any closing thoughts on that, Ricky? No, I think you I think you hit on the head. A litmus test is exactly what the battery story really is at this point. Yeah. And these trends, it's gonna to be too late too quickly. If you're if people are like, oh, well, OK, we can make electric cars now, but there's no supply. They'll quickly run into problems and other people have better mastery. Yeah, it's it's one of those things you can't see coming quickly enough and you can't shift quickly enough. And Mark alluded to that. These are big, big ships. They're not easy to turn. Um, but we hope we hope everybody gets the yeah. gets the message and, and makes the transition. Right. Yeah, and this actually brings up we can transition to the last part I want to kind of talk about with you, Mark, which is obviously all about you and Arkimoto. One of the things I've been so excited about about EVs is it seems to be unlocking and opening a brand new door to new EV form factors that we typically haven't seen uh, on the mass market. And it's like everything from one wheels <laughs> to electric unicycles. I worked with a computer engineer at my last job who rode a one wheel uh, unicycle to work, this little one wheel unicycle. 
Uh, it's it doesn't have to be these massive SUVs. It's like these little personal mobility devices. It's just opening up new possibilities, especially since they don't have a tailpipe. They can also be used in areas where you can't use a gasoline car, even though you could make a small engine that works on a small like little moped. You can't use it everywhere. So it's like things like the Arkimoto, the FUV that guys that you've designed are to me the kind of the beginning of the possibility. And I'm curious how you landed on that design and why you went down that path. Uh, yeah, great, great lead in. Uh, a, a friend of mine calls it the, the Cambrian explosion of, of electric vehicles, where you just uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of amazing, uh, really rethinking of the form factor. And, and it comes down to a number of different things that allow that. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to package uh, a battery and electric motors than it is to package an internal combustion engine. And of course, if you've got an internal combustion engine, you've got you know, major regulatory challenges in terms of actually putting them on the road as far as emissions go. Um, and, and a lot of that gets sidestepped with the move to, to EV. So it's, I, I think you have uh, uh, devices that are, that are certainly easier to prototype and, and uh, concept than, uh, than gas vehicles and then You've just got a lot more freedom within the form to uh, to try out different ideas. Um, as far as how we got to to where 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 we are now with the fun utility vehicle, we we really spent the first about eight years of Arkimoto's development iterating over eight different full uh, vehicle concepts in the three wheel vehicle space before landing on what we thought was going to be the real sweet spot for daily mobility. Uh, and I think what 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 I would say there too is that a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of technology products that are driven by uh, by technology can sometimes end end up being uh, solutions in search of a problem, um, and and I, I would say probably you know something like the Segway uh, was was this where you had a really cool tech, but then um, ultimately the problem that it solves is is walking a bit faster. Um, whereas uh, what where where Arkimoto started was really looking at the problem of daily transportation. Uh, how do people solve daily transportation today? Um, and what are the what are the sort of the parameters of the vast majority of those trips? And then how can we solve that in a much more efficient way? And that, that's where you say, okay, well, people are driving on average about thirty miles a day. They're almost always driving alone or with just one other person and a relatively small amount of stuff. How can we solve that daily driving problem? And that and that that spans individual uh, consumers. It's you know fleets, uh, delivery uh, of last mile goods, um, uh, you know, uh, city inspectors going out to look at buildings, uh, people doing maintenance on corporate campuses, and so that that was ha having that be our guidepost. I think really helped us hone in on a, a, a really sweet new vehicle platform. Yeah, the other thing I was going to bring up was like right now you're only available in the basically the West Coast in Florida, and I'm in the Boston area, so New England. And it's like, when are you going to make a cold climate version <laughs> friendly Arkhamoto? Yeah, so that's that's uh, absolutely in the plans, um, okay. and that that is uh, uh, the 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 reason for going with. The more minimalist approach, uh, particularly as in terms of just kicking off initial production, is that it, it just has to do with capital efficiency. There is a giant market in, you know, sort of uh, temperate, nice climates, uh, for which our present product family is entirely suitable. Um, but as you get into, you know, sort of uh, much colder climates, uh, you know, the 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 Northeast in the winter, the Midwest. Um, then you need to, you know, a, a larger portion of the market is going to want more climate comfort features. I mean, there, there are still a ton of people who ride motorcycles uh, who live in the Midwest and who live in the Northeast. Uh, so there is definitely a market there. But as we look to, you know, true mass production, very high volume delivery, uh, then we're going to want to have uh, an option for people who want full climate enclosure and HVAC and all the rest. I asked that obviously because I was very interested in myself, but there were also people in the comments that have been asking that too. It's like, <laughs> yep. I, I would love to have one of these in Massachusetts, but obviously the current state of it wouldn't work <laughs> here in so the middle of Rocky, winter. Yeah, Rocky R says, Mark, I'm going to sell my gasoline car for an Arkimoto FUV. 
So, uh, that sounds good to me. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> sounds good, Rocky. Uh, Glenn Cook says Marikimoto has heated seats and heated grips. So there's clearly there's there's some weatherization there, but yeah, there, there's going to be a better fully enclosed variant in the in the future. So yeah, to your and, point, and, Mark. And, and by the way, we we are we develop these in Eugene, Oregon, where it rains. Hopefully, it will start raining again very soon. Um, but uh, we we the 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 overhead fairing does a very good job of keeping the water off. Uh, to Glenn's point, it's got heated grips, heated seats. Um, and then we've got accessories, even even the accessory uh, that's coming online here very soon that is just so you can think of it sort of like a kayak skirt, but it's a splash guard for both passengers. So your 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 legs stay dry. You've got heated seats, heated hands, and then you put on a jacket and it's actually really cool to be in, you know, in, in the middle of a rainstorm and you're toasty and dry and yet you get to be in the world. And I think that's one of the real one of the things I love about the Arkimoto driving experience is that you're not in a separated bubble. You're actually part of the world around you. You can interact with people that are around you um, and you actually get to to experience uh, life versus uh, versus being. And I think that's that's kind of a it's very different than, hey, I want to be in a in a in a totally plushed out robo taxi so that I can spend all of my time you know tweeting while I'm getting from A to B. Uh, a lot of the joy of, of the Arkimoto is just actually the experience of the ride and the experience of the world. Matt, have you driven one yet? Not yet. I really, really want to try one. <laughs> they look like a blast yeah. to ride. Yeah, I've, I've driven on uh, the Roadster and the FUV. Um, it, like Mark said, it really is an experience. It's, it's fun. You get the hang of it pretty quickly. I don't know if you rode motorcycles in the past, but um, it, is, it is an experience. It really is. It's fun. It's, it's a different Take. And that's kind of why I've always liked this company. So here's the next question I've kind of seen in the comments and also in my video, Mark. Um, how does Archimoto compare to like a gasoline equivalent, like a, like a Polaris slingshot comes to mind? And there was a question about Aptera. So what do you think about as far as like similarities or differences between the FUV and what Aptera is building? I, I, I love Aptera. I think that their, their whole uh, vision of just, you know, just the absolute utmost in terms of efficiency it's a, they've, they've created a beautiful industrial design um and i i'm i'm rooting for them to uh to get that into production and those guys those guys are obviously not quitters i mean they 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 went through the ringer once before um they got their uh, they got the ip back and they're doing it again and so i i think uh, i'm i'm definitely a, a big fan um they are they are aiming for a you know, a full-size car type thing that goes a very long way. Um, we are aiming for something that is very small footprint and great for urban driving. I don't see a lot of crossover in terms of uh, competitive overlap, but certainly uh, uh, tons of mission overlap. Um, it, versus other three-wheelers like the, the Can-Am and the, uh, and the, and the Polaris, I, there, there are, I, I would say, a few differentiators there. Our, our Roadster is probably the closest uh, product in our family to what they're offering. Um, those are, you know, that, that's the the fun machine category. It's uh, it's the uh, the the weekend warrior toy, and it's there's there's a great market for it. Um, from a design standpoint, from a vehicle architecture standpoint, obviously Arkimoto's are electric. Those are both gas powered machines, uh, but Arkimoto's are also dual motor front wheel drive, uh, where those are rear wheel drive uh, uh, gas engines, and so. And when you have a rear-wheel drive reverse trike, there are there are some disadvantages that come into play. One is that the 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 design sort of fights itself because you want to you want to weight the rear wheel uh, for traction, and you yet you want to push the weight forward uh, for better stability between the two wheels. Um, and so the first three prototypes that we built at Arkimoto were all rear-wheel drive, single single-wheel drive, uh, and it was in switching when we switched on Gen Four to front wheel drive, it made a huge difference in terms of just the feel of the ride. Um, and I would say, you know, if you if you take a ride on a, a Arkimoto Roadster and a ride on a, a Can-Am Spider, uh, I just, uh, you know, let me know how it goes. I might try that. I'm curious because I haven't driven on the other gas versions at all. Another question I don't think I've asked you before, but there's a great question from uh, Karamo. He says, I wonder if the FUV will qualify for the EV tax credit. Have we talked about that before? So there, there are tax credits. You know, in Oregon, I think now you can get up to five thousand dollars back 
for an Arkhamoto purchase in California. It's like 2250 uh, And uh, our understanding is that, the, uh, that, that Congress is now deliberating on a, a whole suite of changes to the tax crediting uh, system for electric vehicles. Obviously, what we hope for is for a level playing field for consumers so that, that you are not penalized as a consumer uh, for making the most efficient choice. Um, that, uh, you know, right now there is a federal credit for two wheelers and a federal credit for four wheelers. Uh, and there's a gap in there that we think needs to be filled. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. Um, just before I ask my question that's related to that, um, just want to give a big shout out to Robert uh, Clocko, who just gave a super chat, said, great to see you both and with an interesting guest. So thank you very much, Robert. Uh, that kind of leads to one of my questions when you're talking about costs and incentives. One of your missions is to make, uh, smarter, smaller, more affordable transport. But right now you're the FUVs cost over twenty thousand dollars. Uh I'm curious what your plan is like to try to get that price lower without incentives. Well our, yeah our our uh, and ultimately, you know, the the the, the long term mission for the company is to deliver a truly affordable product that doesn't require any incentives. Uh which is why the number one goal for the company right now is to design replicable mass production. Um, those are the, the, the long-term price target of getting a vehicle somewhere in the 10K range is not achievable if we're building 400 vehicles a year, uh, which, you know, so, so, so that is, uh, that's why getting to mass production is, is our, our overarching number one big goal bar none. Um, and that, that is, uh, so, so there, there, there are major benefits in terms of economies of scale. When you buy things in higher volume, when you buy parts in higher volume, you get they, they come in at a much lower price. Uh, part of it has to do with designing for high volume production. So, uh, where the way that we build now, we have a we have a vertically integrated semi automated factory for low volume production, uh, where we build and and Ricky, you've got a, a video of. Uh, you know, your tour of that facility where, you know, we basically go from sheet metal and tube uh, through part forming, uh, uh, robotic welding, and then machining uh, to, to put final parts on the assembly line. Um, when we're building it at, at 50,000 units a year, it doesn't make sense to build a lot of those parts that way. You want to just take that, you want to take that weldment and turn it into uh, a single casting or a stamping or um, uh, uh, an injection molded uh, plastic part, uh, and that that just has to do with the balance of uh, production volume output and then cost of tooling up front, and and that's that's one of the big steps that we're taking over the course of the next, basically over the course of the next two years. That kind of ties into one of the questions that we have from Beach Crow. He says, "Will the future Arcumotos have a cast framing uh, instead of the welded tubing?" Uh, we are we are moving to for the for the volume production version. We're going to be moving to a different way of doing the frame. We haven't really talked about that yet, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna save that for uh, for for a future unveil. But it's the the, the goal is to be lighter, lower cost, um, you know, look cool, uh, and and still provide the same level of of occupant protection. There is something that, like, when I look at the FUV, it does not look like this, but it evokes the type of vehicle um, that you see typically in, like, over in Asia. Like, you see it a lot in India and parts of Africa, like South Africa, like tuk-tuks and, uh, like, rickshaws. It seems other areas of the world are very attuned to using vehicles that are <laughs> appropriately sized for whatever the task is you're trying to do. Where here in the United States, it's bigger, fatter, better and we tend to not do that approach. Are you in the long term looking internationally or is that just so far off for right now? You're not even focused on it. Absolutely. No, internationally, we, we've always thought of the Arkhamoto as, as being uh, an, an opportunity uh, the world over, uh, particularly in areas that have, you know, tighter streets, more dense cities and mm -hmm. that are, you know, predominantly focused on much lighter weight forms of transportation. Uh, we think that the that the Arkhamoto platform provides a much better uh, on ramp for the future than the move to the full size car. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the, the the disadvantage in the U.S. is just that we've we've had that hundred year legacy of automotive uh, supersizing that's happened, um, at, particularly as a result of, you know, 
super cheap oil and the and the build out of the of the interstate freeway system, um, and th- that. But but as as the externalities become very clear on that front, we think it makes a lot of sense to downsize the footprint here as well. And then we've got a, a, a another platform in development um, that came out of the acquisition of Tilting Motorworks at the beginning of this year, that's really squarely focused on micromobility. Uh, you know, more of the, the e-bike, e-scooter class of product um, at, that we think we're going to be able to bring some, some new real twist to. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cities over in Europe that are very bike-centric. So the FUV and smaller seems like a no-brainer for you guys in the future. And it's, just, it's great to hear that you are kind of looking more broadly than just the U.S., even though you guys are just starting right now. Yeah. We're looking forward to the day when the FUV is, is the big hulking vehicle on the road. That's, that's part of the plan. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about specs, Mark? You want to lay out like uh, like how much range you get, the battery size, like how long it takes to charge? Because I think there's, there's sure. people who maybe are, are interested in the Archimoto and there's, there's probably a couple of questions that are going to be common that they're, they're going to have. Yeah, and, and the, I think the, the key thing to remember is that the, the, you know, the idea of the electric car is we've got to make something that can do everything that a car can do um, which is, you know, go hundreds of miles on uh, on a tank, uh, carry five to seven people, uh, and charge in a few minutes from from a gas pump. Um, Arkimoto has a, a very different focus, which is we want to do the things that people do on a daily basis uh, much, much, much more efficiently. And so the the average American is driving about thirty miles a day, median trip something like five miles, uh, and so the 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 design of the Arkimoto was uh, was to say how can we solve those trips really really well uh, the the it's got a 19.2 kilowatt hour battery um, uh, about a hundred miles of range uh, for at, for daily uh, you know, for, for for city driving and then that that falls off pretty quickly as you start to go high speed so if you're going uh, 55 miles an hour you get about 60 miles of range and then that drops off uh, considerably, if you if you really are going full throttle uh, the whole way, um, but it, and then when you you charge, I mean the the default charging is you plug it into your household outlet when you get home, and every morning you've got a full tank. Uh, we also support level two charging, so you, uh, from a level two charger, it'll charge up in about four and a half hours, something like that. Um, as we as we look forward, all of those things will of course continue to improve. So we're going to see incremental improvements in energy density in the battery. We're going to see continued improvements in drivetrain efficiency as we continue to lightweight uh, and, and continue to lightweight the, the vehicle, which will provide more range. Uh, and then we're looking at various different ways of adding higher capacity charging, particularly for, for you know, fleets that, that, are, that have delivery vehicles that, that want to be doing uh, you know, a couple hundred miles a day. Uh, there needs to be a way to get those vehicles charged up faster than four and a half hours. That actually raises a question for me. It's like, usually there's like, for those of us that are not in the industry and we're talking about EVs, there's a whole thing of, oh, this new battery's going to come out. It's going to make range of cars 500 miles. It's like, well, do you need a 500 mile car? Or is it better for that company to actually scale back how much batteries they're using in that car to produce more cars that are 300 miles instead of the 500 miles? As that happens for Arkimoto, I'm curious, like, is your design principle based on the user experience, which I'm guessing it probably is, like you're targeting X number of miles. So if a battery technology and all those efficiencies get better, it doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily have an Arkimoto FUV that can go 300 miles. You'd opt to make smaller, more efficient batteries because it's going to make the vehicle cheaper. I'm assuming the answer yeah, to that would be yeah, yes. Well, and, and a lot of it comes down, I mean, part of this is, is from the discussion at the beginning of the, of the talk about, uh, you know, batteries and, and the constraint of batteries. It's if, if you've got, uh, you can put, if you've got 100 kilowatt hours of battery, you can build one 100 kilowatt hour battery car, or you can build five uh, Arkimoto FUVs. Right. So you can, you can serve five trips at the same time for the one trip that you were doing in, uh, in, a, in, in a full-size car. And that, that really comes down to the question of utilization, which is that you know, we wanna maximize energy efficiency and we also wanna maximize utilization of the vehicles. Uh, so, so that it's not about having a, you know, the, the car is something that we leave parked 95% of its life. It's this, 
rapidly depreciating asset that we don't actually use that's incredibly expensive. Um, and, and so a big piece of our story as we look forward is how do we not just continue to drive down uh, the, the sort of the environmental footprint of each thing that we build, but then how do we really drive up uh, its utility in the marketplace? And that, that, that ultimately comes to vehicle sharing, um, which is that, you know, uh, 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 there's a Theodore Levitt quote, which is, you know, people don't want a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole. You want a problem, you're looking for, for, for the problem to be solved, not necessarily, you, you don't necessarily want to own the tool that does it. And so, you know, for, for us, it's, you know, I, we're looking forward to the day when you can hit a button on your phone, vehicle pulls up, you jump into the driver's seat, you take it where you want to go, you get out, and it goes on to the next, the next person who needs a ride. Uh, and that's a little twist on the, uh, the sort of the robo-taxi concept, which is that, that it, it is, it's actually a much lower barrier uh, to have something that is always, that, that is only driving itself or being remotely operated when there's no human inside and where it can be constrained to certain paths or lower speed roads or, or whatever. Um, but that's, utilization is a, is a big piece of the puzzle and then just continually hammering down on the environmental footprint of everything that we build. So is, is that your autonomy plan, essentially? Like you could call an Arkhamoto, like an FUV to show up at your house and I get in and I can enjoy driving it around myself. And then when I'm done, it drives itself back to wherever it needs to go to some depot somewhere. Yeah. That's, that's that's the basic idea. That's cool. <laughs> okay, I can get behind that. Yeah, there's two things at play there. One is downsizing the the, the car. The less metal material there is, the emissions to produce it, the less raw goods you need, and then battery supply. You can you can build five, right, three or four for the for the price, if you will, of one bigger car. And then on top of all that, if you hire the utilization. Uh, and Mark has talked about like he, he has rental fleets. So anybody who wants to check one out and mess with one, uh, check out the website for their locations. But there's one in like in Florida. There's one in San Diego and Eugene. Get and rent it for the day. But that's another the cool business model is if you don't want to even own it, you could just use it for when you need it and hire the utilization. And you combine that with the smaller right sizing, if you will. That's a huge reduction in in cost and pollution and materials needed and it all goes to the mission. We we talk about electric cars as a great alternative to, to gasoline, but we're still building cars the same big size. And if you look on the freeway, take a look around you. Odds are there's a bunch of people driving by themselves. Uh, there was a joke earlier that, you know, if if I could fit my two kids in their car seats in Arkimoto, I would consider it. And somebody else joked that, well, depending on how how big your kids are, they, they might be able to fit in the back of a deliberator. But um, <laughs> there are some use cases where this might not, not work. Recommended. Not <laughs> no, recommended. No. Uh, that's, that's from the CEO, straight from the CEO's mouth. Uh, don't do that. Um, but for a lot of people, for a lot of the time, this works. This would this would do the trick. That's kind of, I, as a motorcycle rider, I think I, I've always had that feeling. Yeah, there, you can, if you <laughs> think about every time you've been on the freeway, uh, where there's an empty carpool lane and gridlock in all the rest of the lanes. Right. What does that say? That says that everyone in those gridlocked vehicles is driving alone, uh, which is nuts. Yeah, and, and the, the bigger the truck sometimes too, like I've seen some of these big F-250s, 350s, usually person by themselves, no cargo, just alone. It's a cultural thing too. There's, there's, some, there's some factors at play, but... I read a, there was a survey uh, of truck owners that something like 30% of pickup truck owners use, 37% use the bed of the pickup one or fewer times per year. Uh, so again, it's, it's not that pickup trucks are bad. Pickup trucks are incredibly useful tools for certain jobs. Uh, and I think a lot of that, that utilization question is, how do we move to a, a system where we're using the right tool for the job. And you know, we think that the Arkhamoto platform offers a lot of right tools for a, a wide range of everyday transport jobs. We should probably kind of quickly talk about what I always found fascinating, Mark, and Mark is a software person as well. Uh, we, I always talk about architecture when I talk about software. It's the key. If you build it well, it's extensible. You can do a lot of different things with it. It doesn't require a lot of work to add features and stuff. Your platform has been pretty awesome uh, because it supports a whole host of, of products. You've, you mentioned the product family, but so there's a deliverator. Um, if for people who believe the future of food and food delivery or just d delivery of everything under the sun is going to increase all the way down to Amazon deliveries, 
well, a product like this really makes sense, especially in urban centers where finding parking spots even for a couple of minutes to drop off packages is tough. This kind of makes sense. There's a deliverator. Then there's like the first responder built for emergency emergency response vehicles, with, you know, with the lighting and, uh, and all of that. My favorite is that SherpTech uh, collab where you've got the, it's like a flatbed truck with like fold out walls. Um, I have a link in the description to a video that I have that you can go check out our video. We kind of dig into it a little bit. But it is really, really capable. It, it, it holds shockingly a large amount of stuff. It, and it sure packs a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> is that the is that the the tagline? It's our it's a new code name. Uh, we're we're still working on the final product name. Got it. Yeah, it's it's um, it's for makes a lot one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really. I mean, it's cool how much you can do with this one platform, which is which is a super cool part about it. And the Roadster probably gives you you get rid of the roll roll bar and you get the the rigidity reduced and it has a motorcycle feel, which is which is super cool. Yeah. So all that comes from one platform. So this. Maybe the coolest part about this company is you guys not, might not even really understand what will be the most popular product, but you've got all these lines. And let's say in two years, delivery becomes the big thing. Everyone's getting everything delivered and the deliverator sales go through the roof. Like you guys are ready to kind of be at the front of all these different kinds of trends that I see, like kind of micro trends in mobility in lifestyle culture, um, partly due to what's happened in the past year and a half electrification and other things. I feel like you guys are kind of at the center of, of some of that, which is, which is cool. The FUV is the ultimate social distancing machine. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, I, you know, one of the, one of the things we've been doing and, and one of the reasons why we are, well, really the primary reason why we're spending uh, a, some of our bandwidth over the course of this year, really mapping out a lot of different ways that you can use the platform and different variants that you can do is that that all feeds back into uh, the development of the mass production version to just make it so that it is a truly very, very extensible platform. Uh, I was talking with a guy earlier today. He said, you know, about this thing, and you need a, a, a beach version that's got, you know, where you can uh, have a cooler on the back with taps and a pop-up an umbrella. And I was like, yeah, you're talking about the thirst responder. It's on the list. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> You've thought about this, clearly. I don't know if Matt, if you've had a chance to watch my video, but one of the really cool takeaways from the the event, the summer showcase, was this cool tech they're working on. Uh, currently, the, the the FUV has power steering, but I mean, at, at a dead stop when you're trying to back into a spot or reverse out, it's a bit tough to to move the 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 the, the wheels. It's it's a problem with most things. But, but Mark has been working with a company that is providing this kind of torque steering system you want to go and talk about that a little bit mark and and how it works yeah and well how... and, and and the the challenge is you've got a you've got a you know a weighted front end uh and then handlebars which only go you know it's about 40 degrees on on you know 80 degrees total lock to lock um that's a lot less steering uh, uh leverage than if you had a steering wheel that's like three spins from from edge to edge uh and so with just the power steering unit doing the work uh, it's 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 pretty taxed, particularly at dry steering, and we had this we we we've we've had this on the the plans for a while, and we finally got into it with a, a company called Stoffel Systems down in the Bay Area uh, to implement torque vectoring, which is where uh, you know really fine control of the two motors in the front um, to uh, to help out with traction and uh, you know basically do things like regenerative analog braking and improve stability and so on. Um, but one of the really neat outcomes of that is that for low speed steering, um, they, they were able to get it to the point where you can steer the vehicle with a, you know, with a little controller uh, without touching the handlebars at all. Uh, you can dry steer it just using the motors in the front. You know, so one wheel basically pulls back a little bit, the other wheel moves forward, and that just naturally uh, creates the steering action. And so that's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're also in that phase where we're just taking taking in a ton of customer feedback on the user experience and then doing everything that we can to continue to refine that experience uh, in, in, in advance of going into much larger scale production. I think that's, again, it's sort, sort of one of the advantages that we have uh, being in production now at low volume, getting lots and lots of butts in seats and getting feedback to make, uh, make the ultimate scale production version much better. I think um, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I, I was thinking we could read the last super chat that we got from Eric Kessler as a kind of a way to go out on this. Um, I can't wait to learn more about what Sandy Monroe said. 
maybe some rapid producibility improvements. I really wish you the very best because I want one for the beach. <laughs> Just like that. Awesome. <laughs> yes, Eric. Well, and, and, and Sandy did, a, I, I think, uh, uh, Ricky, did you interview him uh, at, at PIR? I just I chatted with him a little bit, but I didn't really interview him. No. Yeah, there were there were a couple of there were a couple of videos that popped out about uh, that where he he went into some depth on on what their team has been doing with us, and uh, I'm actually uh, in about five minutes going to jump on a call with that team. So that's awesome. Uh, was it trans- well, it's, was it Transport Evolved? I think they have a video yeah. I think with Transport Sandy. Evolved did so it. So anybody did who nice wants to them. anybody who wants to hear about what Sandy was talking about with with Argumoto and their kind of collaboration, check out Transport Evolved, and maybe I can put a link to it in the in the pinned comments later. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. It's been awesome being able to talk to you, to get to know you a little bit. Well, it's, it's been fun getting stuck in the middle with you guys. So thanks for having me on the program, and uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. We appreciate Bye. your time. Bye. Bye, Mark. And if, if you guys are wondering if Mark is always that much fun, I can tell you right now he is. Uh, it's such a cool, fun company culture they have. Um, the, the, the people that work there and the, the team, it just feels like a ton of fun. And he's... He's he's one of those super cool CEOs. Um, <laughs> on his on the Archimoto YouTube channel, he has this um, this Kenny Rogers kind of remake song. I'll just say that much about his adoration for Sandy Monroe. Definitely go check it out. It's it's really good. By the way, I think uh, our our audience could double you know part time at least on kind of coming up with product names. We got the Parkimoto. We got the thirst. This is good. The, was it the Thirsterator? The, 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 the thirst. The, the, <laughs> The thirst responder. That was Mark. Thirst responder. That's, fanta- that's fantastic. Yeah. That would, yeah. that'd be popular here in San Diego for sure. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, hopefully you guys had fun. We, we're going to try to get industry experts and own, uh, CEOs and really cool people that we can get in touch with to bring to the show. So if you guys have other CEOs or cool people you'd want us to chat with, we can always reach out. We can't guarantee anything, but uh, we'll do our part. And you guys hit that like button enough and subscribe enough and we grow enough and our access will just reach that much further. Exactly. And don't forget that we're live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can always listen to the podcast version of the show at viceversa.show. As always, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in the next one.